Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. So I have hosted a number of discussions on the Aryan immigration, Aryan migration, Aryan invasion, and the out of India theory. And uh, I, I, I just came across a few days ago about the news about Dr. Conrad Elst coming to Mumbai. So Shrikant Telugiri sir reached out and said. Dr. Conrad Els is over here, and I wanted to make most of the opportunity to talk about it. So, just to give you a brief background about what we are going to be doing today, if possible, we are going to be covering two presentations. But we would start with one. Uh, Dr. Els has made uh, a presentation about the Aryan linguistics and many other facets of the case. There will obviously be many questions also that I have prepared that I am going to be asking to both Dr. Els and. Uh, Shrikantalagi, sir. But before I start with the presentation, I want to take this opportunity to welcome both Shrikant, sir, and Dr. Els. Thanks a lot yeah. for coming. So, Dr. Els, let's start like this. I'm going to put the presentation up now, and first we'll go through the presentation. Mm-hmm. You can take us through the presentation, and yes. then maybe we can address a few questions. Obviously, Shrikant, sir, uh, whatever questions you or comments you also have while the presentation, you can make them too. So, I'm going to start putting uh, the presentation up now. All right, let's let's start. Okay, so Dr. Elts, all, all yours. Right, here we go. So we're going to talk about the linguistic evidence in the homeland debate. It all started as a linguistic question, namely where this language family Indo-European originated. So for a long time there was no archaeological or genetic aspect to it. It was purely a linguistic issue. So we're talking about Indo-European. This is a family comprising most North Indian and most European languages. Some people in India don't like the whole concept because it means splitting some Indians from others and it means uniting some Indians with some foreigners. Well, nevertheless, that's, uh, that's what linguistic evidence shows. So... Uh, these misgivings, I think, uh, are no real objection for linguists. And anyway, even politically, they're not real objections. You see, it, it happens in many countries that languages of different provenance simply live together under one roof. So it's it shouldn't be an issue. All right. So, sir, when we... I just wanted to start with this. So... If you could basically draw a baseline also, that what are the two different cases when it comes to the Aryan invasion or the mm-hmm. Aryan migration case? Well, uh, migration there was in any case. Mm-hmm. No, except that some Hindus think that there was no migration at all. You see, they object to an immigration into India and just as much to an emigration from India. Mm-hmm. They see that as a a ploy of the foreign hand if they can't immigrate into India then they still want to have a finger into Indian matters by having emigrated from India so they don't like it either way well sorry for them but the existence of an Indo-European language family necessitates logically that it originated either in Indian territory or outside of Indian territory. All right. And uh, so there's either an emigration or an immigration. 
to speak of the Aryan migration theory, as some do, is rather nonsensical because there was a migration anyway. You don't need to theorize that. <laughs> there was either migration into or out of India. But so immigration theory, that is a, a term I can accept instead of invasion in the sense that an invasion is also an immigration, though a military one. But the result is that people immigrate. All right. So I guess I'll go to the next slide now. So so what are, what are we looking at over here? Well, uh, this is exactly what the uh, Indo-European language family amounts to. So it is practically all of Europe except for Finland, Estonia, Hungary, and then some parts of uh, Russia. And then Iran and most of India plus Sri Lanka. Uh, but not the south of India, which is Dravidian, and some pockets in eastern India, which is uh, Munda, a language family related to Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. Right, so what we use here is the comparative and historical uh, method of linguistics. And so even though Indians pioneered the science of linguistics thousands of years before it existed anywhere else, this is a part of linguistics that they didn't know about. Mm -hmm. See, Panini taught in Takshashila, which is more or less uh, present-day Rawalpindi, which is very close to the Iranian language area, where they speak Patan very close to the Burushaski area, very close to the Tibetan area, yet he writes nothing about these languages. So as an astute linguist, he must have known about them, but he uh, confines his writing to comparison between uh, standard Sanskrit and uh, the adjoining Prakrits. And so these, you know, comparing with other language families, he doesn't do. Also, the history, well, you see, he knew the language of his time. Uh, there was no ancient literature yet that he could compare with. So, you see, those are new things. That, that is something that Indians have to accept. There, the West has uh, made a certain contribution, namely by developing this comparative historical method in the 19th century. So, so Dr. Els, what would you say to those uh, options? you know, objections raised by people that comparative linguistics itself is a flawed uh, hypothesis and the Proto-Indo-European language hypothesis itself is flawed. Yes, I've heard that many times, but not from people who know linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> so in India, you have a situation that, first of all, there are very few linguistically capable people. There are, of course, many polyglots who studied Pashto and Malayalam and so on, but who have never studied the comparative historical method. And um, it's also because of the, the social situation in India. All talented youngsters are pressed by their parents. They'll go for engineering, go for medicine. And so the few people who write about uh, linguistics are engineers who later in life also feel like uh, explaining whatever they think about linguistics. So often it is, it is incompetent, sometimes it is competent, but even then uh, it is missing some things that you could expect from professionals. Uh, so that's 
you know, that's a hiatus in Indian intellectual culture. Yeah, but uh, sometimes, in fact, it's very interesting. I had read somewhere, even Srikant, sir, you were accused of being, uh, you know, too westernized in your understanding of how uh, linguistic works. And if I remember correctly, someone had accused you of being a Protestant. So, <laughs> so they had accused him of being colonized and, uh, when it came to this whole Proto-Indo-European hypothesis. So what would you say to that? Now, uh, I don't know on what basis they are saying Westerners because everywhere I have used the actual text and uh, the actual Rigveda, I have not used Western people's interpretations or something like that, or I have not I analyzed the Rigveda using the Bible or something like that. So what I'm doing is actually uh, analyzing the data, which is there in the text. Like I say, this word is there so many times. This word occurs here or that. This word is not found. It is found in a certain part of the Rigveda. These are, you know, actual facts which you can check out in the text. There's no Indian or Western or Chinese and all this. You're actually analyzing the text. It is not a question of uh, what your attitude is or which viewpoint you're looking at it from. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's go to the next slide now. Yep. Uh, so the Uralic model. Right. So uh, contrary to what some people in India assume, the uh, Indo-European model was not invented as some trick by the colonialists or something. No, it was an emulation of another model that already existed, which is the uh, comparative and historical linguistics of the Uralic family. So this uh, contains uh, Estonian, Finnish and Hungarian, as well as some languages in Russia and ultimately Samoyedic, some, some languages in Siberia. And there is no racial angle to that. They're all white. Also, the scholars who studied it were white. There is no imperialist angle to it. It was just linguistics. And uh, in a few decades, they had mapped out the entire family, shown exactly what the relations were. Uh, so that was a success. And so that appealed to people who had the impression that there was something similar between Sanskrit and Greek. And so then that was worked out in more detail. That was a far more ambitious project and it turned out to work just as well. All right, fair enough. So we go to the discovery of the Indo-European language family. Yes, itself. so there was already a certain suspicion uh, in a few travelers from Europe to India and uh, that was then systematized in 1767 by a French Jesuit living in India, namely Gaston Laurent Coeur-Doux. So him you could more or less call the father of the Indo-European language family. Then his findings were soon commented on by the French uh, intellectual Voltaire and made school quickly in Europe, where the, the spirit of the times was quite pro-Indian. You see in their uh, enlightenment search for an alternative to Christianity, they liked the idea of some Indian ancestry. Uh, then in India itself, in, uh, 18, in 1786, it was the judge, uh, Sir William Jones, who made this whole thing public. You could call that perhaps the, the official birth of Indo-European and uh, from then on you know it was the, it was the craze you see very many intellectuals started working on it 
they call this family Indo-Germanic Indo in German or Indo-European, or indeed uh, Aryan. The word Aryan already existed. It was introduced by Abraham Hyacinthe Anquetil du Perron in the 18th century. He is considered the father of Orientalism. But he used the word Aryan in the sense of Indo-Iranian. So the Iranians and the Indians were involved, not the others. All right. So here, uh, Friedrich Schlegel was a great Indomaniac who greatly praised India. Uh, used the word Aryan in the sense of Indo-European. So Germans, Celts, Russians, and so on, they were all part of it. All right. Now, the question is whether this is really a language family. And so this has been contested greatly in, uh, in India, where people say, yeah, but you see, Tamil also contains many Sanskrit words, so it is cognate. Well, it is not. Uh, Japanese contains many English words these days, or many Chinese words already much longer. It is cognate neither to Chinese nor to English. Got it. And uh, so the situation is that Sanskrit is cognate with foreign languages like Latin and Greek. It is not cognate with Tamil, though it has had an enormous influence on Tamil, which is something else. And so, you know, I could uh, give you the uh, Indo-European textbooks that explain all this. This is not going to convince any Indian who, you know, has it in for the ugly, evil foreigners. <laughs> but uh, I can advise you to read Srikant Alagheri, who has nicely explained this, uh, this whole situation. So maybe that this is a perfect segue. So Srikant, sir, maybe you can explain this uh, whole thing about whether there is a language family or not. Because uh, as you know, many times this has been raised yeah. that there was no such thing as a language family itself. Yeah. So could you briefly touch upon that? Yeah, this is, you know, very like, you know, usual, the usual example that we give is, you know, English father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, and the Sanskrit equivalents are Pitar, Matar, Bhratar, Sosar, Sunu, Duhitar. And the Persian are Pidar, Madar, Biradar, Khosar, Hunu, Dukhtar. So you see, it's so obvious. But now, you know, or numbers, if you take, for example, you take the number three, and you find it in all the Indo-European languages practically. Mm. In fact, in Persian, it is become C, but otherwise it is three everywhere. Now, numbers and relation words can be borrowed by one language into the other. For example, while in while speaking any Indian language now, we so often use English numbers or we call people uncle and auntie when we are talking in Hindi. Yes. So these words can be borrowed, but certain words cannot be borrowed, like, you know, personal pronouns, like I, you, we, she, it, when we're talking in Hindi, we'll never use those words. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, when we see English and uh, Avestan and Sanskrit, for example, in uh, Sanskrit, Vayam and Uyam, no modern Indo-Aryan language has words like that. And English has V and U, Vayam, Uyam. So that is the degree of similarity. And if we can accept that modern Indo-Aryan languages are related to Sanskrit, you have to accept that English is related to Sanskrit. And uh, then you, there are certain words which are so extremely uh, striking. Like, you know, in English you say, I am, thou art, he is. So am, art, is. The Sanskrit words are asmi, asi, asti. 
and the avestan words are ahmi asi asti ahi asti and the greek words are emi asi asti the russian and lithuanian words are esmi asi asti now you will see that for example russian and lithuanian you just get them from the sanskrit word by changing a into e you know asmi asi asti becomes esmi asi asti so these these are modern russian and lithuanian whereas sanskrit is an ancient language yet through the years through the centuries and th across thousands of miles the words are so exactly similar whereas if you see modern indian languages in hindi you will say hu hai hu hai hai in marathi you will say ahe ahes ahe in gujarati you will say chu cho che che in konkani we will say assa 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 for all three so if you see kannada you will say iddene iddi iddane in tamil you will say irukiren irukirai irukiran you see even neighboring languages today have such strikingly different words so when you see that russian lithuanian ancient hittite ancient greek avestan and sanskrit have these three words almost like each other across the as i said the years and the distance and these words are never borrowed as i said you cannot use the english am art is when you are talking or the hindi hai when you are talking english so this shows the deep rooted connection between these languages all right so obviously dr else your passing remark over here is sanskrit is much closer to latin than to tamil obviously you're going to yeah. raise a lot of rankles there <laughs> okay. all right about so, the out of india theory yes well uh, it is very often said by advocates of the aryan invasion theory that this is a concoction recent concoction by hindu nationalists yes and it isn't the out of india theory is as old as the notion of indo-european you see the very first suspicion when they discovered this kinship Mm -hmm. was that land of origin was india you see the, the the role of sanskrit in discovering and establishing this kinship was enormous sanskrit was clearly older than latin and greek and so at first they thought well maybe the language of origin is sanskrit itself if it later that was nuanced a bit sanskrit was close to it but it had already somewhat evolved from uh, proto-indo-european at any rate, it was older, it was closer, and so they thought, well, the homeland must have been in India or, or very close to it, maybe Afghanistan. And so that was the official theory for the first more or less uh, 70 years, till about 1840. So you see those people who say, oh, you've all invented it, Hindu nationalism, and so on, they just don't know their history. Not incidentally, I am all in favor of not knowing your history in this regard, you see, if you want to decide what happened 5,000 years ago, then it's better not to talk about what happened the last 200 years. <clears throat> Way too many polemicists on both sides are always busy with, oh, Max Müller this and William Jones that and so on. I just don't want to know. You see, I, what intrigues me is what happened 5,000 years ago. Exactly. So anyway, the, um, the, the big name here is uh, Friedrich von Schlegel, 
1808, he set it out very exclusively, but it was already in the air. The idea that, that India was the land of origin, Voltaire, Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, Johann Herde, the historian Jules Michelet, they all thought so. And so it is only in the 1830s that the idea of a homeland uh, in or around the Caucasus uh, comes up. Mm -hmm. And so then there are some rear guard arguments in favor of the Indian homeland, but in about a decade's time, that goes out of fashion. And so then the Aryan invasion theory starts. All right. Now the birth of Indo-European scholarship. Yes, so this is usually uh, identified with the uh, comparative conjugation handbook written by Franz Bock in Berlin in 1816. A few years ago in Berlin, there was a celebration of the 200th anniversary. Uh, and then he continued with comparative grammar and so on. So he put uh, Sanskrit in the whole uh, map of all the Indo-European languages. And so from there on it starts, many others take over. And so they start reconstructing this mysterious language, Proto-Indo-European, that must have existed. Now, some, some Indians dismiss it, oh, it's a ghost language, it never existed. Well, it certainly existed, only we have a hard time defining it precisely or describing it. You see, if um, if you exist, that proves that your grandmother existed. Now, you may not have a photograph of her, you may not have a description of her, you may not know anything about her, but you know very sure that she existed. So, this Proto-Indo-European language, even though we are still looking for what exactly it looked like, certainly existed. Now, I have a question here, Dr. Yeah. And maybe for both of you, this question is for both of you. Now, when it comes to the Proto-Indo-European dictionary, so from whatever I have understood, I've tried to read a few linguistic uh, linguists and, and I tried to read David Anthony too. Mm -hmm. They say the construction of the Proto-Indo-European vocabulary or the dictionary where the words mm -hmm. is based on where and what they found in the Eurasian steppes. Mm -hmm. So, oh, I found this here. So this is more likely to be the Proto-Indo-European uh, word. Uh, one of the classic cases being the Proto-Indo-European word for horse mm -hmm. is, is basically constructed directly from what they found in the archaeological excavations in yeah. the Eurasian steppes. So how much or do you think of an impact would that kind of a uh, built-in bias, if I was to use the word with a mm -hmm. lot of trepidation, uh, uh, have in the construction of the you know whole set of words in PIE itself? Well, it is uh, very difficult to connect uh, archaeology with uh, language. Some cases are convincing, like the fact that in the whole of the, the Harappan culture with many cities, you don't find any archaeological trace of an invasion, whereas the speakers of Indo-European were clearly different from the speakers of the uh, Harappan language, or at least that's what all the uh, invasionists assume. And so they don't find any archaeological proof of their theory. Now, was there more of it in uh, Central Asia or in Eastern Europe? 
uh, let me remark first of all that writing in Eastern Europe is really four or five thousand years younger than the supposed presence of the Indo-Europeans in that area. So to say that we have proof, I don't know, you see, we find archaeological traces of ancient populations. What language did they speak? Well, big question. And so uh, archaeology has a role to play in this, uh, this search, but limited. And so what these people say about archaeological proof of Indo-European in, in, in Ukraine, Russia, I don't know, let's, let's consider that, but I, I mean, I wouldn't uh, be too quick in using the word proof. All right. So, uh, Shrikant sir, I had a question for you. Obviously, Conrad, uh, Dr. Els has also mentioned this uh, about the Malayo-Polynesian links. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit of that too? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, see, Malayo-Polynesian, they, for example, you see when people talk about uh, Indo-European and Semitic connection, they take one number for seven, which they say is similar. Now, why would any two languages develop the number seven in common and all the others different? Whereas if you see Malayo-Polynesian and uh, Indo-European, the very first four numbers are similar. Like in Malay, Malay, uh, Malay language, for example, Dua and Tiga. If you ask any Hindi person, what must these two numbers be? What will they tell you? Two and three. He doesn't have to know Malay to know that. So you see how similar they are. But people, because they don't want it uh, to consider this, they re reject it as unlikely. And when they want to, they even take very unlikely connections and try to connect the words. <laughs> so it is not an honest way of doing studies, in my opinion. But the real importance of this suspicion is that uh, he makes a link between the original Proto-Indo-European language and a language situated elsewhere. Now, if you want to say that Indo-European originated in Europe, then it would be helpful if you can find a European language that is somehow linked with this Proto-Indo-European. Now, there is no such. In fact, there is no original European language. You see, we have Basque in Europe, which probably comes from Northwest Caucasus. We have uh, uh, Uralic, which comes from beyond the Urals. And then we have Indo-European, of which I argue that it comes from India, but of which at least uh, most others argue that it comes from Russia, on the, on the far corner of Europe. So most of Europe has no language of its own, or there were, but they are extinct. And so we, we don't satisfy that criterion of finding some related language in Europe. Whereas we do find some such language in the East. Uh, we have more uh, ever since. There is this uh, Russian linguist, uh, Igor uh, Tonoyan Belyayev, who identifies a number of words in common with Tibetan. So who shows that Proto-Indo-European was a neighbor of Tibetan. There is also uh, a theory by some Romanian linguist, Chazule, who uh, tries to show that the Burushaski language, spoken in uh, park-occupied Kashmir, uh, is essentially Indo-European. Now, this case is not convincing at all. However, 
the few examples that he tries to give of recognizably Indo-European words in Boroshevsky may have been borrowed words. And there you see again, ah, these words are proto-Indo-European of the Western variety, of the, the Kentum variety that ended up in Western Europe. Mm. So that seems to suggest that the origin, even of that Western variety, was in India. Interesting. All right. Now we go to the later development. Yeah. So now we uh, we start uh, developing the Aryan invasion theory. So the homeland shifts westwards. Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, there is a. Um, recent PhD in Belgium, Marianne Kepens, who has identified in her thesis about the Aryan invasion question, I think two papers from 1810 or so that already suggest a more westerly homeland. At any rate, at that time, the Indian homeland was generally accepted. It's mainly uh, in 1834 that August Schlegel, who is the brother of the Indomaniac Friedrich Schlegel, who, who thought India was the homeland, he posits a homeland outside India, somewhat convincingly, namely in the Caucasus. Now, the Caucasus Mountains is not a demographic growth area, but just north of it, you have the steppy landscape. And so it might have been there. And indeed, that's where most people still situate the homeland till today. Uh, by the way, this becomes a factor in the racialization of the whole Indo-European theory. So that's what many people in India still identify it with. So you later get this notion of an Aryan race. Now that was helped along greatly by the fact that there was a theory at that time that located the origin of the white race in the Caucasus Mountains. This was started by Johann Blumenbach in about 1800. In America, they, they, they call white people Caucasians mm -hmm. that's because of this. And so if you say that both the Indo-European language family and the white race originate at the same place, well, some people are bound to link the two and then identify the Indo-Europeans with the white race. All right. Now, so there was, I'm, I actually was not aware as you talk about it in this slide. So there was a defense for OIT too? Yes, exactly. You see that what we are doing now was already done. In I'm actually shocked when I, when yeah. I read this, I was shocked because yeah. obviously you had sent this to me. I was going through it. I was like, wow. Yeah. Well, when, uh, when the, uh, Caucasus homeland theory, started then some people teaching sanskrit in india europeans teaching in india uh, took up the defense of india as a homeland uh, the the factor india is important to note here why well you see if you use the mercator projection on a world map you see the mercator projection preserves the angles but is not faithful to the surfaces and so uh, areas closer to the poles are magnified enormously. Areas close to the equator are rendered much smaller. So if you're used to that kind of map, as most people were until recently, then India is a very small place, much smaller than Scandinavia, for example. Whereas in reality, of course, it's as large as Europe as a whole. 
And so inside Europe, people started neglecting India. In fact, there's a book about this, L'oubli de l'Inde, the, the forgetfulness about India, where India in the 18th century took a central place. In the 19th century, it was relegated to the sidelines more and more. This also had to do with its political status from a rich, mysterious country in the distance. It became a mere colony. And so it was easier to, to neglect. And so it didn't figure anymore in considerations of the homeland. However, Mount Stuart Elphinstone, who was a colonialist par excellence, who had been the governor of uh, Mumbai presidency. Uh, later in life, he wrote the history of India, in which he says very explicitly that in the classical Hindu writings, there is no mention at all of coming from elsewhere. And there is no reason at all for thinking that the Hindus ever inhabited another country. So, um, to be sure, in many of the other branches, there is also no memory of another country. But that is easily explainable in the sense that uh, the time between which, let's say, the Germanic people arrived in Germany and the time when they committed their traditions to writing, there's thousands of years between that, long enough to, forgot, to forget. And even then, there is a tradition, just, just one line in, in the Edda that says that they came from Asia. So even then, there is a notion of, of immigration. Well, that's not there in the Vedas or in the Mount of Smriti or in the Puranas. There are stories about immigration from India. So that's an argument that is still being used, but that was already used by Mount Stuart Elphinstone. All right. And another argument he uses is that, you see, some people clearly at that time already are swayed by the uh, notion that this uh, steppy homeland lies nicely in the middle. They went to the Atlantic and they went to the Bay of Bengal and that's about the same distance. Well, interesting, but that's just not how it goes in reality. You see, Russian, for example, has expanded from what is now Ukraine. That's where it started, Kiev Rus. And it went all the way to the east, like 10 time zones, all the way to Alaska. Mm -hmm. And it didn't go west at all. Of course, Russians individually mig migrate to the west. But there were already established Polish, German, and so on languages, and so they adapted. They couldn't establish Russian there. Uh, the same thing with Arabic, which moved from Arabia all the way to Morocco, westwards and not eastwards. Uh, the Bantu languages started in, in West Africa, Nigeria, or so they moved all the way to South Africa, and they didn't move north at all. And you can easily see why. You see, the Bantus were so, so successful demographically because they were the ones in Africa who started with agriculture. Now, agriculture, you can practice almost anywhere in Africa, but not in the Sahara Desert. So they didn't move north, they only moved south. And this exemplifies how the reasons why people migrate are not symmetrical. So you shouldn't expect a symmetrical migration. And so it's very logical 
it is rather probable that they start in one far corner, in this case, India, going all the way to the Atlantic. Fair enough. See, so, um, you know, there is a certain inertia in people's minds that make them assume this uh, symmetry. And so this culture, the Pitgrave culture, or in Russian, the Yamnaya culture, Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's located in, in Russia, Ukraine. Now, the recent insight, both from linguists like Paul Hegarty and from geneticists like uh, David Reich, uh, is that that uh, was indeed an important center. Indeed, that's where the Indo-Europeans entered Europe from. So looking from Europe, that could look like the homeland. However, it's only a secondary homeland. So there they settled in large numbers coming from somewhere else again like uh, in india for example when david reich published his book a few years ago oh many invasionists uh, ran away with it saying oh yeah you see he proves our theory that the origin was in south russia well no he doesn't uh, he thinks that the origin was in northern iran and that then uh, the yamna area was a secondary homeland Mm -hmm. So the origin was not in Europe, not even in Eastern Europe. It was in Asia and, well, fairly close to India already. So we can, we are already near the area of Iran and yeah. those those particular areas. So um, after it was no longer India, the homeland could be located in many places. Some have even located it in Atlantis. Uh, or it could be in Belarus, the Pripyat marshes. Uh, Bactria is, is closest to India. Anatolia has been a recent favorite in the 1990s. However, since the publication of the book The Aryans, Study of Indo-European Origins by Gordon Childy, Australian, in 1926, there has been a growing consensus for Southwest Russia. And uh, this was given more body in the 50s by Maria Gimbutas, a Lithuanian refugee working in America. Uh, so she she brought this narrative, this which instantly became very popular, of the martial Kurgan culture. Kurgans mm -hmm. means grave hills. Great pits or and um, so they were martial, they were they were masculine, they were warlike, and they overpowered the peaceful agricultural old European culture. The old European culture, by the way, is not really European. You had an influx of the first agriculturists from Anatolia into the Balkans. And so it must be those people that were overpowered by the incoming uh, Aryans. Uh, anyway, so there was a very good story about the ugly, vicious, uh, masculine Aryans overpowering the feminist uh, old Europeans. And that scenario was then projected onto India. So in Europe, you have plenty of uh, proof for this invasion. You have totally new pottery types, habitation types, uh, burial types, and so on. You have new skeletons, new genes. You see that a new population comes in. All this stuff is totally absent in India. Yet, you see, this was projected onto India. So symmetrically, they overpowered Europe and they overpowered India. 
Now, why is this gentleman so important, August Laker, if I call Yeah, him? well, yeah, he is important, perhaps not so much uh, known from the Indian side. He um, brought a few ideas that each of them are rather important. Um, he uh, worked just after uh, Darwin. Charles Darwin started this teaching of evolution, and so then it was applied everywhere like it was even applied to yoga by Sri Aurobindo. But so it was applied here to the life cycle of languages that have a birth, a time when they flourish and they decay. Um, part of that is the notion of an Indo-Germanic uh, primeval people. So he says, you know, if they spoke one language, it means that there was one community speaking the language. So that's the Urfolk, the primeval people. That, of course, has been heavily criticized recently in Europe by all the leftists who say, yeah, but you see, this is a Nazi notion and so on. Deutschleicher had nothing to do with that. Uh, and so they want to sort of uh, dissolve the whole notion of nation. Uh, yeah, well, and the next one is... Uh, the next slide is really what he's known for. Namely, he writes a fable in Indo-European as then conceived. So it's a, it's a story about, um, about the sheep and horses. So it sees the horses, you know, either pulling a wagon for the human beings or carrying a heavy weight for the human beings or carrying a man, you know, riding the horse. And so the sheep is uh, commiserating with the horses. Uh, but then the horses say, well, you know, you are no better than we because your, uh, your hair is being shorn by human beings and turned into clothes. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, that's the story. And so you can put that story into Indo-European as you can put it into any language you know. Now, the kind of Indo-European that he reconstructed has evolved since then, that you can see on the next slide. Uh, so the first version still looks very much like Sanskrit. Uh, like, for instance, where you have Ovis in Latin, you have Avis in Sanskrit. So back then, they still thought the Sanskrit form was the original. Nowadays, they think that the Latin form was the original. Fascinating. Uh, anyway, so you see this, this, uh, this evolves the whole time. And so when new linguistic theories come up, that's, that's one thing they always do. They take this story and put it into that new language. All right. Yeah. Then you have two theories, uh, again by this uh, Schleicher, the Stammbaum theory, which is the genealogical tree theory which says very realistically that you speak the language that you learned from your parents. And so languages don't change a lot. They preserve what you have learned. However, there is then secondarily the Wellen theory, the wave theory by Johannes Schmidt, which emphasizes the horizontal changes in language. You know, you speak a language. Meanwhile, you hear speakers of other languages there are some expressions that you find useful and so on, you take over. And so your own language changes a bit, you know, starts to contain elements that your parents didn't know about. And so that that is also there, but I think secondarily. Anyway. 
then you have a notion um, that explains the Indian situation. This is the so-called Sprachbund or linguistic area. That is to say, uh, you may have different languages of different provenance, but because they are close together, they influence one another and they start resembling one another. So I am told by Indians that uh, different Indian languages, including Indo-Aryan Indo languages and Dravidian languages, are very similar. And in fact, it starts very early. The, the Tamil grammar, the Tolkapiyam, is, is, is a copy almost of Sanskrit grammars of those days. And so they consciously, you see, try to work to a similar model and also simply by practice the different languages come to resemble each other. So that's why some Indians say, oh, but all these languages are cognate. They are not. Nevertheless, they have influenced one another largely. And so they form what linguists call a linguistic area or Sprachbund. Then, uh, you know, we can't go into too much detail here. Then you have the neo-grammarians who try to give all the typical features of a science, of an exact science, to their uh, linguistic reconstruction. So if you uh, nowadays see manuals of Indo-European, you have all these asterisks and accents and so on, that, you know, you have these people to thank for. And so one practical thing uh, important here is that under their hands, Sanskrit moves ever farther away from Proto-Indo-European, which tends to justify the idea that the homeland was not India. And so India at that time gets definitively out of the homeland race. Well, here are a number of examples. So Duo uh, becomes Dwa in Sanskrit, Duo in Latin and Greek in Germanic. I mean, you can see all these uh, similarities. Bharami, uh, to bear, to carry, becomes a fero in Greek and in Latin, or to bear in English, and so on. Let's, uh, you know, you can take a look at this, but hmm. it's, it's rather obvious. Then another linguist, I only mention him here because he's important in the story. Uh, you may not get very excited about this. Uh, he's the father of so-called structuralism. And so he finds structures in language that show up things that you don't expect, like his main discovery is the so-called uh, laryngeal sounds in Proto-Indo-European that don't exist anymore in any of the extant Indo-European languages. Although it did exist still in the disappeared Hittite language, but there again, we are more than 3,000 years ago. So these sounds are familiar if you know Hebrew or especially Arabic. The Alif, the Ha, and the Ayin uh, are these throat sounds, these laryngeals. So they must have existed in Proto-Indo-European as well. Anyway, that's controversial. You know, I know... Uh, I know linguists who say, oh, the infamous laryngeal theorem. But most people believe in it. And so in 1914, they discovered Hittite, which turned out to have these sounds. So it, it was not so 
not so fanciful. And, and this shows, of course, that it really is a scientific thing. A good scientific theory predicts. And so he predicted the defining uh, of these sounds and that effectively. So basically what he did to be, uh, to be more clear, he basically took a backward integration approach. He, he yeah. broke the words down and he took them back. And this is most probably how they would have developed. Right. Yeah. Then there is the matter of demographic common sense. You know, if you look at the map, part of the demographic figures, it's obvious that India is a giant. And moreover, it was culturally more advanced than these wild uh, riders of Central Asia. And so it easily absorbs and assimilates invaders, as it has done all through its history. And uh, if there are immigrant groups from India, they may be a small minority in India, when they come into Central Asia, they suddenly are a large dominant group because that's far more thinly populated. And so in Europe, there is no such giant as India was. Um, so uh, you could compare it. You see, some people ask, OK, if these languages came from India to Europe, shouldn't we then find Indians in Europe? Now, we find some genetic relation between East Europeans and Indians, but not much. And uh, there, this is easily explainable. Namely, the Indians came into Central Asia. There, somehow converted the local population to the Indo-European language. And so from then on, most of the speakers of Indo-European in that area were not Indian anymore. And then that group, conquered Europe. This we can ex we can compare with something else than language, namely religion. Uh, Islam was transmitted by the Arabs to the Turks. The Arabs uh, only had a very temporary little foothold in, in Sindh, the westernmost province of India. But the Turks conquered India repeatedly and large parts of India. And so <laughs> the way that the Turks brought over an Islam that they themselves had borrowed. Similarly, this Central Asian population must have transmitted into Europe an Indo-European language that they themselves had borrowed. Or in the case of Buddhism going outside India. Yeah. It's not like the Indian genotype exactly. has traveled outside India. Right. I mean, Buddhism has also traveled all over the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like you have Indian DNA in all those Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Today, in the West, you have Buddhist yeah. too, right? But so genetics is, is such that nevertheless you can find a little bit of traces of immigration. And so you do find some genetic similarities between East Europeans and Indians. And more so at the level of the animals. You do find in the cows in Ukraine or in Syria a clear contribution of the India Zebu cow. So the, the cow herds that the Indo-Europeans are supposed to be, they took their herds with them when they moved to Eastern Europe. By contrast, they never took their cows with them into India. The Indian cows don't have traces of the genes of the European cows. Yeah. So what is this linguistic evidence that we are talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, um, this is about the rootedness of words. So um, some people don't want to believe it, but I think it's pretty good. Sri Aurobindo, 
1915, wrote that in other languages, the word wolf only means wolf. Whereas in Sanskrit, vrka is typically a form derived from the verb vrk, you know, the, the root vrk, which means to tear, to, uh, to pull apart. And so that gave me a, an idea. Yes, you see, there must be many words in Sanskrit that still have a meaning that are rooted in the general vocabulary. Whereas in the other branches, they have lost these roots and only mean what they mean. Only, and, you know, they are an individual word. Um, like, uh, for instance, son. You know, the, the son, the child, the male child. Um, comes from a root su that you find, for instance, in Saviter, the sun god, meaning the, the procreator. Um, so you have this meaning in su to procreate, and then you have a derivative sunnu. Now, in other languages, you just don't have that root anymore. You only have the resulting word son. Oh, for instance, pater, uh, father, which becomes pita in Sanskrit, uh, in Sanskrit still has a root pa, which means to protect, which is probably the origin of this, uh, this word. Uh, so um, often, and he gives a list of about 400 of words that in Sanskrit are rooted in the general vocabulary, whereas in the other languages, they are just, uh, they fall from the sky, have no connections. Hmm. Then there are the um, the loan words. So uh, uh, this is, of course, a field of study in its own right. Uh, for instance, in Germanic, they say there are about thirty percent of non-Indo-European words, which means they have borrowed it either from a substratum a lower-lying layer among the existing indigenous population that they found upon immigration. And so from them, they mainly borrowed words for landscape elements, for materials. Whereas they may also have encountered groups that were superior. And from them, they borrowed mainly words for social organization. Um, so that's true for Germanic, that's true for Greek. Greek has about 40% of borrowed words, which incidentally is a great contrast with Sanskrit. Vedic Sanskrit has practically no borrowed words. Later, of course, it becomes more as Sanskrit uh, grows uh, in, in surface and therefore comes in contact with more languages. Then it starts borrowing from Dravidian, for example, but initially it doesn't. And so the oldest Greek or Germanic that we know has a heavy dose of uh, borrowed words. All right. So I maybe I can ask this question over here now. Then, um, Shrikant, sir, you can also answer this. So I have a question uh, out of the list which I had uh, given yeah. it to you. So if I was to then, uh, you know, maybe ask this question, uh, let me let me pull the question out and read it because I think it, it makes sense with this current slide that we are talking about right now. So if this is the case, the, because we are under loan word. So historians say that the middle Rigveda, 
has many BMAC Dravidian Santali loan words, which maybe are missing even in Iranian. Yeah. Then if the OIT is true, how do we uh, explain that? The, shouldn't that be the case that they should have retained at least uh, something till the Iranian group then? No, see, what they don't realize is that uh, it is not a unitary uh, original group which from which pe uh, people departed away. Like it is the Purus who are the Vedic people. The Anus and Druhus were to their north and west. So there is little chance of Dravidian influence on them or Austric influence on them. So those who went out did not have Dravidian and Austric influence. Even in the Rigveda, that influence comes only in the later parts when, you know, they became a high civilization and people from other parts of the country came and settled down there and all. And even more so, that was in Rigvedic times. But just 1000 years ago, the Romani people, the gypsies migrated out from India, mm -hmm. from the Indo-Aryan heartland. Yet they have not taken a single Dravidian or Austric word with them. So do you deny that they went out from India? Whereas these people went out four, five thousand years ago from the northwestern frontiers, which were far from the Dravidian and Austric areas. So this very question is, you know, ridiculous. Unless you are willing to accept that the Romani people, the uh, language also did not go out from India. You have to accept that the European languages did. All right. All right. Now I'll go to the next slide. I, I just thought I would ask this question mm -hmm. on the loan words when we are on that subject. All right. Right. Then you have the question of really foreign loan words. You see, we would like to uh, root the uh, Proto-Indo-European language in a milieu, in a landscape with other languages. Now, in the case of Europe, all these other languages have disappeared. We can't do that anymore. We can see in Germanic there are many loan words. They must have come from some language, only we don't have that language anymore. Now, in the case of uh, Proto-Indo-European, we seem to have loanwords from Tibetan, or Tibetan has loanwords from this Proto-Indo-European. At any rate, they were neighbors, which is what in North India they are. Um, so, for instance, the word uh, pugs, meaning cow in Tibetan, uh, is only distantly related to the Sanskrit word Pashu. But Pashu itself comes from an original Indo-European word, which you see far better in the Latin form pecus, which means cattle. And that pecus is remarkably close to the Tibetan word pukes. So uh, you may have this, uh, this, this closeness of Proto-Indo-European with Tibetan. And, and so that, that would fill an enormous gap in uh, the, the evidence for the out of India theory. There is no such evidence for the Aryan invasion theory, but so far there was also no such evidence for the out of India theory, unless of course, as you say, there was a relation with the Austronesian or Malayo-Polynesian Malayo language. But so here we have a closeness to Tibetan that is very, very, very significant. Now, what about the absence? Yeah, well, there is a, this is a, the, the, the case of, yeah, the case of, um, uh, well, Dravidian, for example. So all those who say, yeah, the Harappans were Dravidian and the, uh, the Vedic people borrowed all kinds of cultural motives from them. Well, no, in that case, they would have borrowed plenty of words, 
which they haven't. And so, you know, Dravidian is off the shortlist of the possible languages spoken in Harappa, at least in their area. You see, personally, I think that Dravidian was spoken in the coastal area, coastal Gujarat, coastal uh, Maharashtra, and was there gradually uh, overpowered or gave way to Indo-European speech, which they took over. Uh, but so in the, the Vedic heartland, no Dravidian. All right. So, but what would be, so if I was to ask you in this case, yeah. what would make you change your mind in this scenario? That is a very good question. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what makes a science that, you know, you are willing to uh, review your, uh, your position uh, because of new evidence. Um, well, uh, we could, of course, find these, uh, these loan words. We could find loan words from other languages that we don't realize yet. Uh, like, for example, in India, you have a disappearing little tribal language called Nahali, which is spoken here in, in this part, in, in Maharashtra. And there's not much of it left. Now, who knows, you see, precisely because we have so little of it, maybe it conceals some treasure of ancient uh, Nahali that proves quite close to Indo-European. Uh, but, I mean, it is very unlikely that we are suddenly going to find some manuscript with Nahali from 3,000 years ago. But, in principle, this is possible. You know, that's what you always have in historical disciplines. A really well-crafted, established theory can suddenly be shaken by one new discovery. All right. That may happen here. So, uh, I actually... Uh... If you could explain this uh, Proto Munda slide, and then maybe I can even ask Rikansar about the Witzel bit too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, the photograph here shows Michael Witzel. He's a bit of a hate figure among uh, Hindu nationalists. Um, so I've met him several times. We had a pleasant talk. <laughs> so, uh, nevertheless, I think he's mistaken. Uh, he says that the um, BMAC, which is here, not the Babri Masjid Action Committee, but <laughs> is the uh, Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex in northern Afghanistan, Turkmenistan. So um, that was a fertile area around the Amudarya, you know, a population center, not like the in the Saraswati area, but still sizable. So some civilization may have existed there. And if the Aryan invasion theory is true, then those people ought to have uh, come there first before entering India. And so they may have borrowed some words from the Bactria Margiana archaeological complex. So he says that, for instance, about the word Ishtaka, which means brick. Now, that word exists in Vedic, but only in late Vedic. Whereas if they came from this area in northern Afghanistan, they should have brought that word with them, and it should be in evidence since the beginning. So just to be precise, by late Vedic, you mean the new Rigveda, the later books, right? Yeah. Okay. And um, another word is Parsha, 
Now, Parsha exists in Greek, Perse, which means sheaf, sheaf of uh, grain. Uh, like there is a, a Greek goddess Persephone, and you can analyze the words as meaning she who beats the sheaves. Uh, anyway, but so that's not a borrowed word, that's an Indo European word. Uh, so you see, his a uh, handful of words supposedly borrowed from this uh, BMAC culture that, that doesn't hold up, I think. More interesting is his theory of paramunda languages. That is to say, a number of words in Sanskrit that show the same structure of munda, even though they are not attested in the munda languages that presently exist. Now, munda languages at present are spoken all the way east in um, Jharkhand, and not at all in the in the Harappan area or the Vedic area, but maybe at that time they were. But there must have been already some serious difference given the distance. And so uh, what we find in the Vedas might be words with the same structure typical of that family of languages, but not exactly the words that we know from Munda. And so a classical example is Kumara, which uh, means uh, a young man. And so this seems to consist of a uh, prefix ku and then a root mara. And so that follows a word pattern typical of Munda. So that could be true. And if true, that's not really a problem. You see, <laughs> where they were, the Vedic people must have bordered on the language area of the Munda people. And so once in a while, some word may have been borrowed. Why not? It doesn't say anything against the nativeness of Indo-European. Fair enough. Shrikan, sir, I actually wanted to hear your views on the same also. On about this Munda. Yeah. Yeah, see, this by making such an argument, uh, they don't know how much they're putting themselves into trouble. Because see, Firstly, what I have shown about the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda, the massive data in the Rigveda, which shows that there is a gulf between two parts of the Rigveda, old and new. Now, all these words, if they are found in the old Rigveda, that means they far precede the Mitanni and the Avestan language, which belongs to the new Rigveda. So, which means that long before the Mitanni appeared in West Asia in 1750 BC, Already the Rigvedic language long before that had these Paramunda words, according to him. Now, whether these words are Paramunda, because see, he says they are not actually attested in the Munda language, but they're structurally similar. But let us accept that they are Paramunda words. What it means is that already the Rigvedic people in the old period, long before the Mitanni appeared in West Asia, were so much naturalized in India that they had borrowed many Munda words as part of their vocabulary. This takes the dating chronologically far, far beyond any of the AIT dates for the invasion and automatically works against them. And even more peculiar is, you know, that in the Mitanni uh, names, apart from the names of the kings of the Mitanni, the only Mitanni name known to us is the name of Kikuli, the writer of the horse manual. Yeah, the Kikuli horse manual. His name beginning with Ki is also influenced by Paramunda words, then that only strengthens the proof that the Mitanni went out from India. They also have those Paramunda words which the Rigveda has. 
so it strengthens the out of india theory chronologically as well as you know typological linguistically got it got it so now let's uh, this is a very serious issue linguistic paleontology dr yeah. els over here too when it comes to linguistic paleontology there are many people who are doubters mm -hmm. of this entire uh, framework itself yes yeah, so the uh, arrival of linguistic paleontology in 1859 is one of the nails in the coffin of the out of india theory at the time because that really seemed to prove that india could not be the origin uh, because a number of words existing since the beginning of indo-european uh, seem to belong to the, the, to the colder climate mm -hmm. now that's not really proof because india has also islands of cold climate near Got it. the mountains and so india has wolves bears uh, and and other animals of cold climate beavers uh, and so on um, so it doesn't prove anything, but still, it's it's you know it's it's bad publicity for the out of India theory, let's say. Mm -hmm. But then, if you go look closer, uh, you find that maybe there are hot climate animals in the old vocabulary, like ape. is also a Germanic word, even though there are no apes in Germanic-speaking territory. Uh, even elephants exist in Germanic, but with a changed meaning, namely camel. Uh, but you can see how when people leave elephant-rich territory to move to camel-rich territory, that the same word changes meaning, gets adapted to whatever fauna they find. Uh, so uh, linguistic paleontology was very popular. There certainly played a role in this homeland debate, but it has gone out of favor precisely because when people change environments, they often change the meaning of words. And so the word may, may be retained, but with a different meaning. Or the uh, word may disappear, but not, but not prove that it didn't exist originally. Got it. Uh, so, you know, I'd be very careful with this linguistic paleontology, although sometimes it has some successes to discredit. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Shrikant will tell us about the elephant. Uh, but I'll, I'll add one more thing that uh, I've thought about, namely the technology of wheels and carts. You see, there are six different words in Indo-European that are attested in almost all the member languages for the parts of a cart. You see, axle, wheel, yoke, and uh, this seems to mean that this was a Proto-Indo-European word that played a big role in the expansion of, of Indo-European. And I think it is because a wagon allows you to expand. You see, what happens numerous times throughout history is that a band of young men start raiding some city, even establishing an empire but they marry the local women. And very often it is these local women who raise the children and so their native language remains and the conquerors lose their language. Like the Mongols, for example, under Genghis Khan, they conquered an enormous territory of which, um, except for one little part in, in Russia, Kalmukia, 
you see, has disappeared everywhere. Nowhere do they speak Mongol. And um, like, for instance, in, in Persia, it's very well known. They, uh, they adopted Islam, they adopted the Persian language. And so, of course, they remained in power, but they were not Mongol anymore. Um, so, uh, if by contrast, you do not have to do the conquering with just a band of young men, but you can take families along, they really implant the original language, the conquering language. And so that's what you could do with the wagon. You see, they had wagons just like, you see, the conquerors of the Wild West in America, they took their family along in a wagon. And so this existed already at the time. Mm. And so that made uh, an impressive expansion possible. All right, so Shrikant sir, could you actually explain the elephant example as Conrad sir has mentioned, words change meaning with the changing environment in the case of the elephant and linguistic yeah. paleontology? Yeah. No, that is uh, true because see the elephant is recorded, the name, the common name. It is found uh, in Hittite, Greek, Latin and uh, in Sanskrit. And also uh, as a derivative name for camel, it is found in Slavic and uh, uh, Germanic. Now this uh, covers the full range from east to west, from ancient to modern. And the thing is, you know, when people were migrating from India, they had to have migrated from India if they have a common word for elephant. Obviously, they could not take elephants with them through their northern migrations. So the thing is that this word is common for elephants and ivory. So obviously, they took ivory with them, which is why in the northern languages, you don't you find that this word is not used for elephant. Whereas the Greeks who migrated through the south and they were in contact with elephants throughout Africa, West Asia, etc. So they retained the dual meaning uh, uh, ivory and uh, elephant. Whereas even Latin has retained only the word ivory. And so have the northern other uh, Hittite. Because they, they went through the north. They did not actually take elephants with them. Now another thing is about this uh, linguistic paleontology. It is not only the early people, uh, Indologists who made this argument. Witzel makes it now. For example, about uh, wolf, wolf, bear, etc. Now, the, the thing is, you know, these uh, scholars have got away with saying anything they want and no one questioning them. Now, let us take the example of bear. Does it show a northern origin? Because in the whole world, there are around eight species of bears. And Europe has only one, the brown bear. And to the north of Europe, you find the polar bear. Whereas in India, you find four species of bear. The Himalayan black bear, the sloth bear, the brown bear. And you find the Malayan sun bear in Assam. And to the north in Tibet, you have the panda bear. So how does this bear, word bear, show a northern origin? And when you go even deeper into it, you will see, you read Mallory's book. It is not I who am saying this. Mallory points out that the common word for bear in all the Indo-European languages is from a root, riksh, which is what uh, Conrad Else has said and what uh, uh, Kazanas has pointed out, you know, that uh, the roots develop into many words in Indian, in Sanskrit, whereas they are isolated words in the West. So this bear word bear is from a root, which has not produced any other words in any other branch. But in Sanskrit, it has produced words like raksha, rakshas, etc. Riksha for bear. So you see, when you go into any of their arguments, you uncover more and more evidence for the OIT. 
opposite to what they are intending it to show all right so let's go now to the next one obviously so yes so i will let you speak first for mm-hmm. shikant alagiri <laughs> yeah well um of course uh when the uh, out of india theory has gained its place then all the textbooks are going to you know forget about people like me but they will certainly have to mention shikant so uh you see he made a lot of or you know several crucial discoveries that then opened up the way for discoveries that some of us have made but so did the crucial work absolutely is his uh about linguistic paleontology well you heard the example of uh, elephant uh i may also mention the example of horse some people think that the word for horse uh, again proves a northern homeland well it doesn't and so some linguists have found that the the pattern of the word for horse in greek in latin and so on shows that it is clearly a borrowed word you see it has no stable morphology that you see follows all the rules for changing between one language and another no it seems to have been borrowed separately in each of the languages now all of europe and all of central asia has horses and so to come from a land that doesn't have horses well that almost has, has to be india so it's a very uh, unexpected uh, consequence of linguistic paleontology but that's not a very strong type of argument but for what it is worth again it does not disprove the out of india theory all right so now we go to the isoglosses now this is a slightly technical one uh, dr yeah. else now i would request you to spend some time and explain this because these are slightly complicated because i remember yeah. in my last discussion mm-hmm. with shrikant sir also he had also said that the isoglosses are slightly technical yeah. so mm-hmm. maybe we should sp- spend some yeah. time and break it down for people but right. what these isoglosses are yeah. exactly yeah okay well um an example of an isogloss is uh, so a common change between two languages that proves that they were still together at the time when the change happened like for instance uh you have a word penque which is the origin of sanskrit pancha meaning five and uh so that in greek becomes pente that's not yet a big difference but in latin and in uh celtic that uh, initial p becomes qu that assimilates with the next consonant so penque becomes quenque that becomes latin quinque and irish coic uh so that's one example of an isogloss it proves that latin and celtic must have been still together after splitting off from proto-indo-european they were still together before splitting off from one another and becoming real languages in their own right um so that is one of the few cases where linguistics may really say something about the homeland this is important to note uh you know i i disagree with all these indians who say that that linguistics has nothing to say but it is quite limited it has a few things to say but not much and so that's what i learned at the time in university in my courses of indo-european linguistics that uh linguistics is unable to prove the homeland that at any rate it hasn't proven the homeland you know a uh, proof of this is precisely that there are so many different theories 
Some say it's in Anatolia, some say it's in Germany, Poland, some say it's in Afghanistan and so on. So all these are compatible with the linguistic data. So here you see linguistics doesn't prove much. But you see, in the case of the isoglosses, sometimes it may prove something. So here it proves that Latin and Irish were together for a while, which is logical. You see, they started somewhere in Eastern Europe or Central Asia, they went west. They were together for a while until the Italic people branched off to the south, the Celtic people to the north or west. And then they, they, they became different. Now, there um, are some uh, strange phenomena that have been not so much studied or that have been purposely uh, kept in the dark. But you see, there are such isoglosses between Sanskrit, Iranian, Armenian, and Greek. Now, if you say that the homeland is in, the, in, 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 in Russia, and it means the Greeks have gone west and the Sanskrit people have gone east. So they were separate already since the beginning. Whereas if they came from India, well, then it is possible that the Greeks remained there after the Germanics, the Slavs and so on had already left. They still went through some changes together with Sanskrit and then they left India. Hmm. Uh, like, for example, on the next page, you will see a few examples. Um, like, for example, there is an augment, that is to say a vowel in front of the root of the verb that indicates the past tense. Um, like, for instance, in Greek, lipo, to leave behind, yields elipon, I left behind. Uh, in Sanskrit, this vowel, a, becomes a, so you have adhat or agamat, gamma from the, the verb to, to go, to come. Uh, so Agamot, uh, he went. Then another one is uh, the word uh, ma or me, which means don't, uh, which doesn't exist in Germanic, Latin, and so on. Or, for example, the changeover from S to H, which you find in, uh, in Iranian. For example, in Sanskrit, you have the word sapta, seven. In Iranian, this becomes hafta which has then found its way back into Sanskrit or into, not in Sanskrit, but in, let's say, Urdu, hafta, meaning a, a week, a period of seven days. Um, and so you have the same thing in Greek where, you know, septa becomes a hepta. A heptagon means a polygon of seven angles. Um, so you see this continuum from Greek to the west of India. You see some of the Indian Prakrits also already have that tendency of changing S into H. Uh, some people to speak in Gujarati have given me a good few examples. Uh, or for example, even in Hindi, you have it very rarely, like the example I give there. Satar means 70 and 71 is not Iksatar, but Ikhatar. Ikhatar. Yeah, so very rarely you also have the same tendency. But so anyway, this is something that unites these, let's say, southeastern Indo-European languages and that indicate that Iranian, uh, some Indo-Aryan, Greek have gone through an evolution together. 
which is hard to explain if they left in opposite directions from a homeland in Russia. Mm. And so it is more parsimonious, uh, simpler to posit an Indian homeland rather than a Russian one. All right. Well, this here is uh, linguistically not important. It's just there in order to, well, convince the Indians that they should stop their prejudice against linguistics. <laughs> and you see, India has a great history in linguistics that they started it all. Like, for instance, the very first Sanskrit word that I knew, knew I learned in the class of uh, Dutch diction, of properly speaking. So we learned about the, uh, the sound harmony between succeeding words. Mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, like, for instance, we learned that in standard Dutch, you say dat ding, which means that thing. Okay, dat ding, which means that the first word adapts to the second word. Dat ding becomes dat ding, you know, voiced. Whereas in the Flemish dialects, you get the opposite combination, dat ding. So the dat retains its unvoiced characteristic and the second word adapts, becomes unvoiced, whereas the, the consonant is originally voiced. Um, now, this phenomenon, I mean, I don't want to trouble you with uh, Dutch linguistics, but the interesting thing is that this phenomenon of the adaptation of succeeding consonants was called sandhi. So the, 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 the euphonic word link, which is so, uh, so important in Sanskrit, you know, and which is described in detail by Panini and the other grammarians, you know, when they saw, the, 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 the linguists in the 19th century saw this, they said, oh, but this is very relevant. You see, this explains lots of things in Western languages. And so this became a standard concept in, in linguistics. So you see, it all started in India. So Hindus ought to have been the best linguists, but unfortunately, they started all this decolonization business. Oh, <laughs> lingu linguistics is a racist pseudoscience, that's all. Okay, well, you see, to, to encourage them to take pride in Sanskrit linguistics, uh, I'd like to mention to them that the periodic table of the elements uh, by Dmitry Mendeleev uh, was inspired by the perfect structure of the Sanskrit alphabet. You see, he saw that structure also at work in the word of the chemical elements. Srikant sir, actually, I have a question for you over here. You know, as Conrad, Dr. Elves has uh, mentioned this, you know, there is a lot of uh, lambasting of linguistics inside the Hindu circles by calling it racist, pseudoscience, and people who promote it are called many things, yeah. which unfortunately includes you also by a certain section. Yeah. So how do we convince them that everything is not a Western construct? And even if it is a Western construct, if it makes sense, it makes sense. Now, uh, this is something, you know, um, I, I gave the example of Asmi, Asi, Asti, which becomes Asmi, Asi, Asti in Russian. This is so simple and direct that anyone should understand that such words are not borrowed, that they have to show relationship, mm. but they refuse to accept it. But the thing is, you know, that we easily blame Indians for not accepting linguistics. I myself have done so many times. 
but the thing is that the western scholars blatantly and brazenly do the same thing without anyone questioning them like for example starting from witzel to sturman there have been so many articles about the dasharatne battle in all of them they say that it was a battle between sudas and indigenous non indo european non aryan people and yet all the names of his enemies are either the names of iranian groups on the western front or on the eastern front their names of uh, you know matsyas and been uh, typical sanskrit names not a single one of them is a non indo european name yet none of them feels any compunction in treating this battle which has nothing non indo european in it as a battle between indo european and non indo european all of them do it and they continue to do it no one asks them how how do you say that when not one of the enemies has a non indo european name no linguistic connection is there between indo european and non indo european in this battle so they do it brazenly and blatantly they pretend that they are actually addressing a linguistic issue but they blatantly and completely ignore linguistics when it is convenient to them so you know it is something that indian should as it is given here hindus ought to have been the best linguists unfortunately indians have hindus think it is some take pride in rejecting things claiming that they are western means i find it very funny that you know people who study in english write in english use the latest modern gadgets and then when you use a scientific principle they claim it is a western one like linguistics and we should not use it it's a i mean it's inexplicable all right so the conclusion well it is a misconception very popular but a misconception <clears throat> that linguistics automatically implies the aryan invasion theory that if you reject the aryan invasion theory then you have to reject linguistics in fact linguistics can be shown to support the out of india theory mildly i don't think that is very solid proof but anyway what proof it contains is more on the out of india side all right so now i get to the questions sir all right so now yes. we can get to the questions now i'll read the questions out so maybe i'll start with this one first so shrikant sir this maybe you can take this so if the out of india yeah migration happened yeah during sudas's rule how come the europeans have no memory of indra yeah so why why is that the case then well indians have no memory of uh, any outside <laughs> area although the rigveda is uh, even by western uh, dating it is more than 3000 years old so how can the other people who have written much later have uh, memories i mean this is you know when these people ask uh, raise objections they uh, it their one way objection that when the same objection is raised to them they think it does not apply to them it is like as i said when they say linguistics uh, they brazenly declare things as non aryan even when there is no linguistic angle to it so it is the same thing you know it is there is main thing is there is no honesty in the debate anything can be there if honesty is not there there is no sense in any debate you know we say ait versus oit debate but is there a debate because we we are answering every single point and objection raised by them 
where they just continue to repeat the things without uh, any compunction and they don't reply to any of our points. Right. Now, what I have given about the Mitanni uh, vocabulary being new Rigvedic, that is something they have to address, but they continue on the way without addressing it. So yeah. I think, you know, instead of a debate, what we really require is like uh, I say, you know, the Ayodhya debate was going on and uh, they kept on maintaining that there was no temple under the no uh, mosque structure until the court gave the judgment after considering all the data. Now, you know, they were saying there was no temple because they were refusing to look at the data. Hmm. But when a court, a neutral court examined the data from both the sides, they arrived at the correct conclusion. Now, here these people can get away with, you know, ignoring all the data and evidence you are putting forward. And because they are in control of the narrative in the media, in the academics, in yeah. political uh, circles. So they can, you know, promote their lives without any, uh, without any shame or without any, you know, trying to restrain themselves. So what we really require is we have, I think, done all the debating part and presented all the evidence. Now, what we require actually is a neutral judgment from a judicial uh, group dedicated to this subject only. Now, people will say this is not something that judges can decide, but given the data, they can decide it like they did in the case of the Ayodhya. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we have presented everything and any new objection that there is also we can immediately answer it. All right. The thing is that they are not acknowledging. All right. So, Dr. Els, this is a two-part question, which yeah. I'm going to be reading out for you. Yeah. So, the first part is, if chariot invasions from north to south mm -hmm. are implausible due to terrain, mm -hmm. then wagons carrying families out of India would be equally difficult too, right? No, not equally difficult. Perhaps difficult, but not equally difficult because, you know, an August-drawn cart going slowly is after all much less vulnerable than a horse-drawn chariot mm -hmm. and so you see the, the way Nehru describes you see in his uh, discovery of India he writes a letter to his daughter you know invoking the big moments of Indian history so he says can you imagine you see the Aryans uh, storming down from the Khyber Pass on their horses and so on well <laughs> Yeah, I mean that is that is really the the Aryan invasion theory, you know, in full glory. Uh, but you know, for warriors to come down the mountains like that is is far more unlikely than for you see peaceable uh, families in wagons. But yes, I mean I know you see about that. The last word has not been said, and I'm not an archaeologist. I mean, looking at the archaeological data, I imagine it like that. But you see, maybe experts have more to say about this. Meanwhile, uh, your earlier question presupposes that the uh, Europeans forgot about Indra. Now, there I disagree. They have another name for Indra. It's only the Hittites who have the name Indara, who is a goddess. Uh, but more is, is functional in the same field as Indra. But so you have Zeus among the Greeks and Jupiter and Thor, and they have the same role as Thunder God. And so they have a, a lightning, a Vajra, 
in the form of a hammer or you know something similar and they are the same sort of persona you know uh indra is a, is a very virile fellow uh who does all these great exploits and so you've you have the same thing about uh, uh zeus who you know has all these lovers and and thor and so one thing for instance that they have in common uh, because of his great virility, uh, Indra is lampooned precisely in that field. Like, for instance, oh yeah, and he also has a typical power of the thunder god in each of the Indo-European uh, branches, which is to take the shape of anything he wants, you know, which later in India was philosophically interpreted as the doctrine of Maya, the world being a shape taken by the ultimate um, and so being basically uh, an illusion. Now you see uh, Indra has the illusory shape of the husband Gautama of the beautiful woman uh, Ahilya that he wants to seduce. So she's very faithful, she can't be seduced. So he takes the shape of her husband and then you see they make love. She thinks that she's doing it with her husband, but actually he's cheating. Then later when her husband finds out, he utters this curse over Indra. And so there are, in different stories, there are different shapes of the curse. The one I prefer is that uh, from now on, you will have a thousand vaginas. And so all over Indra's body, suddenly you have these wet holes appearing. <laughs> and so he goes to Brahma. He says, "Look, I look ridiculous. Is there nothing you can do about this?" <laughs> and so he says, "Well, you see, if a Brahmin utters a curse, no, there's nothing you can do about it. But I might hide the effect, namely by putting an eye into each of these holes. Then you will be known not as Indra with a thousand vaginas, but as Indra with a thousand eyes." Now, you see similar lampooning of the storm god's virility you find in the Greek version, in the Germanic version, and so on. Like, for instance, Thor uh, has at one point lost his hammer. And so to recover it, he has to dress up like a woman. You know, and, and so there are many, many similar details. He, of course, also, in this case, his son, who has the same characteristics, his son Siegfried, does the same thing. He takes the shape of, you know, a woman he's lusting after, of her husband. He does it as if her husband, and then later, of course, it, it comes out. So this is more of a comment, I guess. Though. So if mm. these ancient wagons would naturally be pre-horse driven, yeah, yeah. bovine driven, if we assume early Mandela migration. So wouldn't they also need then pre-existing roots as it's not easy riding a wagon in the mm -hmm. wild in that sense. So would this speak of a continuous bi-directionally connected populations going way back even further then? Well, the, the, the wagon was invented at some point in history. You know, it's not like fire that was invented maybe 300,000 years ago or so. They were too late to invent that one. But you see, the, the the wheel was very new. I mean, there are cultures who, until very recently, didn't have wheeled vehicles. So that was new. And 
if you make new inventions, well, very soon they're going to be taken over by your enemies and by everyone else. Then the advantage it gives you disappears. But in the beginning, it's a tremendous advantage. And so for the Indo-Europeans, it helped in their great expansion. And so by the time all the others had it, well, they were already expanded from the Bay of Bengal to the Atlantic. Fair enough. Now, Srikant, sir, this question is for you. The oldest available Latin texts or ling linguistic data yeah. are in the same time frame as non-Sanskrit Prakrits, right? Yeah. For So the, the Maharashtri, Satavana poet, poetry and stuff like that. Yeah. So would inclusion of Indian Prakrits as part of the data of yeah. the construction of the Proto-Indo-European vocabulary itself yeah. add value or it's just more noise in the entire reconstruction? No, but then for that you have to have linguistic acumen to know which can be really part of the original vocabulary which has not been uh, found in the Vedic uh, literature but it is found in the Prakrits in the East because some of them may be later words, some of them may be borrowed from other languages and some of them may be original Indo-European words, which are there in other Western branches, but not in Vedic. So that, you know, you, I can't give a blank answer because only a linguist who can really study this honestly and impartially, he will be able to do this. But definitely these languages contain many, many words. And I have given, for example, some uh, scholar named Norman, who has studied these words from the Prakrits. And he says that there are many words in the Prakrits of the East which are found in European branches, but not in Vedic. Then uh, similarly, there are many things like, for example, as per their theory, you know, three uh, Indo-Aryans and Iranians came from uh, Russia, step, the steppes into the East, leaving behind many things which they did not bring with them. For example, the Kentum words. And yet we see that there is Bangani here, there's Tokharian to the North. Then there must have been other words which, for example, as uh, Conrad has pointed out, the word uh, for uh, cow borrowed by Tibetan is a Kentum word. So there are many things like that. Another thing is, for example, uh, the, a common word for sea. I have written an article on that also. It is not found in any of these branches. It, that word is found only in the five European branches and in Hittite. So, and yet this word is recorded by Panini in his uh, Unadi Suktas as a word for sea. Now, where did he get this word from? Because it is not found in any Vedic or non-Vedic Sanskrit text. It is not found in any Iranian text except in Ossetic, which is in the extreme west. So that must have been borrowed from there. It is not found even in Greek. Means, you know, at the time of Greek, certain words like Kendra, etc. were borrowed from Greek into Sanskrit, later Sanskrit. But Greek did not have this word also. So what it means is that the, the ancestral forms of many of the Western languages were there in India. They were not recorded, but they left certain clues like this word Mir or like the Kentum features, which are there in many uh, un unexpected places. So the, this... If many things are, for, for example, also according to the theory, you know, when the Indo-Iranians came from the West, there were originally two sounds in Indo-European branches of the West, L and R. And Indo-Iranian has merged them together. And yet we find that languages, uh, dialects of the East within India have retained that distinction. How can it be? Because in Avesta, Rigveda and the Mitanni records, have only R originally. 
and L only comes in the Rigveda from Eastern dialects and then it is found in Eastern Prakrits. So which means that if you want to see the earlier forms before the Indo-Iranian uh, group, you don't find them in the Northwest or in the West, you find them deeper within India. So obviously if the Prakrits are studied, it will yield plenty of information. But as I said, it requires experts. I, I am not one, so I cannot claim to be. Fair enough. So Dr. Els, this is, uh, I think the last two, three questions are more about from the work of David Anthony. Yes. Now in David Anthony's work, he, he puts a lot of uh, importance on deriving. So, uh, so I, uh, let me draw the narrative. So what, what, what we see in David Anthony's work is the archeological excavations in the Eurasian steppes and the area around that they see certain, uh, patron client relationship patterns mm -hmm. or certain guest host relationship patterns, yeah. which they try to connect it then with the Rig Veda. So the, the question here is if these features exist, are they unique to Proto-Indo-European uh, or the Rig Vedic societies or, or to make it something out of the blue is a little bit of a far stretch and they're just features you might find everywhere. Well, um, I, I haven't studied all these other cultures in that respect. Uh, but uh, generally, I, I certainly want to second the uh, view that many things that were deemed typically Indo-European are much more widespread. Um, like, for example, you have Indo-European tree functionality, uh, which is a term by Georges Dumézil, which describes the fact that in Indo-European society among the Celts, the Germans and so on, you have three layers, you see the upper class, the middle class and the lower class. And they have symbol colors, white, red and black, which are the same colors as in India, the Triguna scheme. And so in my opinion, what we, you have simply is a, a, an application to society of the Triguna scheme, which is common to all Indo-Europeans. However, it's not only common to all Indo-Europeans. Like, for example, you have a Turkish myth about Boaz Khan, uh, who uh, he's, he's uh, conceived because his father uh, is invited to some, some festival given by the king, and he finds that uh, all men who have sons are housed in white tents, all those who only have daughters in red tents, and those who have no children at all are in black tents. Mm -hmm. And so he's housed in a black tent and he realizes what is shame, and so he starts you know, arranging that he and his wife have children. Um, now, you see there, you have a rather primitive conception of this division into three, where they are still linear. You see, white is all good, red is halfway, and black is down below. Whereas in the real Triguna scheme, they form a triangle. You know, they're not upside down with one halfway between the others, no, you see the middle one, Rajas, the energetic pole, has something that neither the, the, the heavenly pole white or the earthly pole black has. And so it cre creates a dynamism. It creates a turning circle between those three. So you see that this basic idea of Triguna, of the three properties, 
is not exclusive to Indo-European, though it, it follows a certain evolution that is typical of Indo-European. Now, in, in, in terms of this uh, comparative mythology, you find many cases where you have myths that are common to all the branches of Indo-European, but you also have myths that are common to ju not just Indo-European, but many others. Like, for example, um, in Indo-European, you have the myth that the world was created by twin brothers, one of whom kills the other one. And so you have uh, one called Manu, which is become Manu in India, that kills Yemo or Yama. And so you find all kinds of applications. For example, Romulus founds the city of Rome, which is a world in miniature killing his brother Remus, Remus, which is an assimilation to Romulus of the word Yemus, right? Or, for example, in Germanic, you have the killing of Yama, who there becomes Emir, uh, so that the parts of his body become the parts of the universe, mm -hmm. uh, which is, by the way, a myth you find back in the Vedas, in the Purusha Sukta. You see, the Purusha Sukta has not only society, but also the physical universe uh, come forth from uh, cutting up of a human body. So the Purusha, uh, you know, his, uh, his skull becomes the heavenly vault, his feet become the surface of the earth, his bones become the mountains, his blood become the rivers, his eyes become the sun and moon, and so on. So you have a similar, uh, a similar myth in many places, not only in Indo-European. You find it all the way with the Mayas in, in, in Mexico. You find it with the uh, Chinese, the myth of Pangu. Um, so you see many of these myths have taken a certain shape within Indo-European, but really date back further. And so it's important to say this because in, in the 19th century, well, let's say till 1945, you know, very much was made of Indo-European. This was the identity. They were the good ones. And so all kinds of things were deemed typical of Indo-European, whereas they are just human. And so they, they exist in, in other cultures also. All right. So another question, and uh, maybe both of you can take this. Uh, do you accept that the citadel dwelling, copper mining Sintasta, were merely an extension of the Yamnaya from the Pontic Caspian steppe? Or could they have been a different people altogether? Could they have been culturally and linguistically linked to BMAC and ISVC as sources of wealth, technology, and economic demand more deeply than to the Yamna derived people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know archaeology that well. Last year, I've Followed the series of lectures by David Anthony. And so he assumed this Sintashta uh, identification with the, the first chariots and so on, which I hear now is being challenged by Indian archaeologists or by Russian archaeologists, even. Yes, yeah, Semenenko being one yeah, of them. Right, who say that you see Sanauli near Delhi, that has real chariots, 2000 BC. Uh, whereas at uh, the same time, you would have them in Sintashta, but they're not real chariots. Anyway, I, I don't, I can't go into this discussion. It's interesting, but I don't know enough about it. 
So Shrikant sir, what are your views on the fire findings by Litor, Crowell, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, Gage and others on that Sintasta chariot. Do you have any views on that? Yeah. No, absolutely. It again shows the double standards, you know, that uh, what they have been tumtuming everywhere that, you know, this uh, 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 chariots found there in Sintashta are the original chariots which were taken everywhere. Yeah, by the yeah because this new paper basically claims that they're not chariots. They could well be carts. Yeah. Yeah. So once that has been fixed as a dogma, then however weak it is, it is still carried forward as if it is something, you know, absolutely proven. And when they don't want to accept something like the uh, present chariot found in Sanoli, then immediately they reject it. Although it may be equally or even more uh, likely to be a chariot than the Sintashta one. So it is not a question of what the facts show, but what they want the facts to show. As I said, I repeat, honesty is the only thing wanted. Like I also and Conrad also, whenever we find something, uh, what we had said earlier is not correct. We are willing to modify our uh, yeah. this thing and accept the fact. But these people don't do it. Fair enough. Honesty is what is required. Fair enough. One last question and maybe I'll have to read a little bit to lay it down for you, Dr. Els. So David Anthony makes a claim for the spread of Yamna peoples and culture and hence Proto-Indo-European mm -hmm. from the Stredni Shog and Suvorovo Nova Danilovka areas yeah. to the entire Pontic Caspian steppe in Europe and even to the east of the uh, you know east of the Urals. Mm -hmm. His claim is based on the occurrence of Kurgans, even though the contents of these Kurgans, which would be ceramic uh, styles, grave mm -hmm. goods, orientation of bodies, etc. They turn out to be completely different from region to region. Yeah. I mean, the source is his own work, right? The horse, the wheel, the language. Mm -hmm. I mean, is he being conveniently reductive in order to claim that a homogenous monolingual Yamna explosion in that sense uh, spread Proto-Indo-European across this area? Or in other words, isn't it possible that the meme of uh, Kurgan building was adopted by many different ethnicities and linguistic groups without any wider cultural transfer, such as language? Well, yeah, that is possible. And so it's hard to prove one way or the other because this is thousands of years ago in an area where we have no manuscripts or anything linguistic. So, I mean, all I can say here at this distance is that, well, this is possible. Um, what I heard during his lectures was a, a bit of the new genetic evidence where he shows that the people from Eastern Europe, these Yamna people, and people from Northwest India, and also people from Tuva, a part of uh, Asia just west of Mongolia. They have the same genes, it's something like uh, uh, R1A, um, and uh, there is a sort of road between Eastern Europe and India, which he thinks was traveled from Eastern Europe to India, though Indians show, I think, convincingly that this gene was older in India than in Eastern Europe. But anyway, he admits that there is no road from uh, Eastern Europe to Tuva. Whereas, you see, there are roads from India to Tuva and to Eastern Europe. Uh, so, you see, he is uh, honest in, in just noting that. And you know, in fact, it uh, goes against his theory that these people, both in India and in Tuva, came from the Yamna culture. Uh, now, of course, he also probably uh, 
assumes that evidence that is not there yet may in the future be found, but at least he admits, you see, there is no such evidence for the theory which I am proposing. All right. All right. So before we wrap today's discussion up, uh, Dr. Elts and uh, Shrikant, sir, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, this was thoroughly educating for me. I, I learned a lot. And I'm glad that you know we could do this together. I know it was a bit of a rush, mm -hmm. rush, but we somehow managed to do it. But before we wrap it up, uh, uh, first you, Dr. Elts, and then Shrikant, sir, any last parting words that you would like to say? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, I am rather optimistic about the progress here. You see, so far the last uh, at least 15 years, we've had an enormous stonewalling, a complete ignoring of our position by the opposite camp. And I, maybe I'm too optimistic, who knows, but I have the impression that cracks are appearing in this stonewall. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Shrikant, sir, any last words? Yeah, see. What I uh, want to say is that actually this is a subject which uh, covers the various scientific fields of study like linguistics, archaeology and textual analysis. And now they have also introduced genetics into the debate. The thing is, you know, that on every single point we have actually won the debate. But because there is no honesty, it is not accepted. So th the whole thing becomes senseless. So what we the only thing that I want now is that there should be an impartial um, a person who will evaluate both the sides and arrive at a uh, conclusion. That I think is the only solution. We have nothing new to say. When they bring a new point, we have the answer ready. But uh, if they don't acknowledge it, what can you do? Like even now, for example, uh, everyone, uh, I have seen so many people pointing out that people say, your uh, Talgiri is not one whose articles appear in peer-reviewed journals. No, these are these peer-reviewed journals who say that Sudhaspat anti-non-Aryans, uh, um, natives and all. When there is no scientific basis for that. So peer-reviewed journals has become a sort of, you know, um, Vasila sort of thing. If you uh, appear in a peer-reviewed journal approved by these people, they are the ones who will judge whether they themselves are wrong or not. So... <laughs> There is no uh, sense in continuing a dialogue with such people or even with many, frankly, idiot people within India who, you know, refuse to consider the case because they say, no, no, those are professors in Western universities. They write in peer-reviewed journals. So who is this person? He's a bank clerk. He's something else. He's something else. And they don't check, see the data. So the only solution in my this thing is a judicial uh, evaluation of the case from both the sides well fair enough we will we'll see what uh, happens uh, but this has been a fantastic discussion once again thanks to both of you for uh, coming uh, over and chatting with me i have learned a lot from you as i was telling you in you know in fact uh, uh, shrikant sir has been on the podcast multiple times and you know i have learned a lot from shrikant sir but i have to put this on record uh, Dr. Els had uh, written uh, about negationism uh, in India. You know, I learned that term from him. 
and uh, i was telling him today when i met him offline and i told him that you know he wrote the book about the negationism of the record of islam in india i told him i want to add to that you know and i learned from him and i added to that not only is there negationism of the record of islam in india there is negationism of the casteism and the mm-hmm. behavior of hindus and indians in general about their castes tendencies in india so you know dr else once again it has been a pleasure to meet you and shrikant sir thank you very much guys we'll end today's discussion over here if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the channel like the video leave your comments in the description of the podcast there will be a link to shrikant sir's blogspot and dr else's blogspot too you will also find uh, all the other social media handles to connect to dr else i, I know shrikant sir is not on twitter so you cannot connect to him over there <laughs> and uh, please support the charvak podcast by you know subscribing to the channel going on patreon or on youtube the youtube membership or buying the merchandise or sending your donations i will see you next time on Until then, namaste, take care, bye-bye.